0: concentrate on the business part of it. It's four letters in the word farm. But remember, there's twice as many letters in the word business. It is a business. And I think that uh, when things look like we're heading into a little bit of uh, choppier waters, uh, I would make sure that I was encouraging myself as well as the next generation to focus on the business side of the farm twice as much as the agronomic side of the farm.
1: Every day, we rely on food, fuel, and fiber. But how much do you know about these industries we depend on? In this podcast, we dive deep into the production and processes of these everyday essentials. This is Field Points, an original podcast production from Series Solutions. You're listening to the Field Points podcast. I'm your host, Morgan Seger. Thanks for joining us on our second episode of the series on policy and the economy going into 2024. In our last episode, Bruce Kettler from the Agribusiness Council of Indiana spoke with us about policy that's impacting farmers across our region. Today on the show, we're joined by Damian Mason, the host of the Business of Agriculture podcast. He talks about what growers should be thinking of going into 2024, with it being an election year, and shares his opinion on what things will have the largest impact on growers across the country. From inflation to diversification to his thoughts on China, Damien does an excellent job relating his content back to what matters most to you, our listeners. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Throughout our talk, I'm joined by Drew Gerritsen, Chief Marketing Officer at Siri Solutions, and he helps me guide this conversation and asks really thoughtful questions to drive home what matters most to you. So without further ado, let's meet our guest today, Damien Mason.
0: My name is Damian Mason. I'm a farm boy from Huntington, Indiana. Dan Blocker has been uh, calling on my family's farm since he uh, graduated from the fine institution known as Purdue University. Uh, I think it was 1989 when he started calling on us. I'm a touch younger than him. I graduated from Purdue in 1992. I came back to the area. I own a few chunks of farm ground and a house in Huntington uh, that I bought. About 20 years ago. And Mrs. Mason and I live there with our two dogs half the year. We live in Arizona half the year as well. I travel quite a bit. I do speaking engagements at agricultural events all over North America. I also work producing video content, podcasts, and doing events for a group called Extreme Ag, which is some forward thinking farm operations that are doing trials and. Uh, new practices and whatnot, and sharing their information online. I also host a thing called the Business of Ag Success Group. And then for seven years, I've been the producer and host of the Business of Agriculture podcast. I've got two books out. Within the last four and a half years, that is, that's a business book geared to small business people over my right shoulder called Do Business Better. And then over my other shoulder is Food Fear, a book about the past, present, and future of American agriculture. So i um, really excited to be on here. I am a Series customer, uh, albeit very, very minor. I buy some fuel and about five gallons of glyphosate off of uh, Ceres <laughs> yeah. every year. But I rent my farm ground out. So about 200 tillable acres that I have, I rent it to a large-scale dairyman my acres tend to be in crops that go to cow chow, meaning alfalfa or corn for silage and sometimes triticale. So that's what's going on. I'm ready to dig in here with you and Drew.
1: So thanks for joining us. We appreciate your time. And we wanted someone that had some roots in Indiana, but could give us a outlook on just how things are looking across the country as we're heading into an election year. So do we want to start with the farm economy? Sure. So what is your opinion on the outlook for just the economy and how it impacts agriculture for 24?
0: So we've been, this is an interesting thing. If you pay attention, here we are recording this the first week of January, 2024. The main street economy, the the general economy has been allegedly going to roll into recession for the last, this is the most talked about, anticipated, programmed and perpetuated recession in the history of paying attention to the economics of our country. And the reality is, it doesn't appear to be happening right now. We still have pretty good things rolling along. The inflation picture—we're heading into year three of some pretty prohibitive inflation. Allegedly, there's some there's some calming down of that gas prices. An article I just read here from the other day in Wall Street says that we're going to end up being around three dollars and fifteen cents in the national average for the year. That helps average to below average income people a lot. Uh, or wealthier people, it doesn't usually impact them as much because gas isn't as much of a percentage of their income. Home prices are starting to stabilize. Thank God. We've got a real prohibitive issue out there because we went up to 8% interest. And why am I talking about Main Street? Because you asked me about ag, because what we noticed over the history of time is that Main street economy and ag economy tend to be counter-cyclical, or ag tends to be counter-cyclical. They, they tend to walk down different paths. It's an interesting thing. In the 1980s, in general, after we got through the tough part of stagflation and all the criticism that Reagan got for Reaganomics, by about 82, 83, things started to really upturn for the main street economy by the mid-late 80s, with the exception of some, uh, you know, some challenges here and there. But obviously, we know what happened in agriculture. If you're old enough to remember or if you're a history of agriculture at all, The 1980s were as trying of times as we ever had, even rivaling some ways uh, the Great Depression, the 1930s. So if the Main Street economy goes uh, into a little bit of a slowdown due to interest rates, due to the Fed tightening monetary policy to uh, to, to make things slow down, what's that mean for ag? Well, we might actually be in the same thing. Meaning that we might not be countercyclical because we've been anticipating an ag downturn for a while. I've been hearing about it for a while. I recorded an episode with somebody from Compure Financial, uh, just and put it on my Business of Agriculture here the uh, Christmas, and we talked about where all this goes. The reality is the farm position is pretty good still. Our capital position is generally okay. Our asset to debt ratio, because of these elevated land prices, is really strong. But we're going to start getting into a realm of where this interest rate has a cumulative effect. And you know, and my my friend Jared Creed, who's a farm farm financial consulting, he said, Damien, we got we got a lot of my operations. That are seventy dollars an acre goes out the door just in just in operating interest. And so that's a big thing. And these interest rates, which obviously have doubled in the last two years, a lot of people don't think about that. They say interest is going up went up 4%. Well, no, it didn't go up 4%. It went from, say, 4 to 8% on operating. Farm Credit just sent me a thing. I have an operating line with them I almost never use, but I still keep it open. They tell me that right now, borrowed operating money from Farm Credit is moving up to 96 So you're around 4% just two years ago. That doesn't mean that it went up 5.6%. It means it went up 120%. And that's where I think a lot of people struggle a little bit when you talk about the the capital expenditures in the realm of agriculture. If you're using a lot of borrowed money, if you look at money, Morgan and Drew, as an input, just like fertilizer and fuel and glyphosate, and you say money is an input, when it goes from four to nine point six percent. That didn't go up five percent. It went up a hundred and twenty percent. that's something that people gotta get their heads around. It'd be like fuel going from $3 to $7. And so that really I think is a big one. So where's things going? Where are things going in agriculture? We know commodity prices are going to be a bit of a challenge. $5 corn and $12 beans don't sound bad, but That was, they didn't sound bad five years ago. Right now, our cost of inputs are going to really, really challenge us. So everybody's saying we're going to probably be just limping along at about break even. coming off of 2019 being pretty strong with the TARP money and the the MFP money or whatever that program was to make up for the tariffs. Coming off of 2020, 21, 22, and 23 were really strong financial pictures. So if we have a break even year, that's about to be expected. And I think we're going to probably be about there.
2: Damien, do you think the interest rates are holding farmers back from making large purchases at this point? I mean, I I was thinking about, like, there's this talk around the feds lowering rates as we get in later into 24. So you wonder if people are like being a little gun shy on making some of those large purchases. I actually heard that twice in the last probably two weeks. And I just kind of curious what your
0: opinion of that is. Well, my opinion is based on being out here. You know, that's the thing I've, I've kind of moved into being a, a dot connector. <laughs> I've got a lot of, I got a lot of feelers out there. And so uh, like my buddy Casey, uh, who's in the equipment business, and I've got some people that like clients, you know, I just worked for Agco last month. Uh, so when you start talking about big purchases, obviously, let's go with the biggest one being land. Has it land, slowed? Yeah. Has interest have interest rates slowed down land? Uh, you could certainly anecdotally or even uh, <laughs> evidentiary, say, I don't think so. I mean, you can look at some situations where, and everybody in ag loves to talk, Drew, oh, that place sold for 15 grand an acre, 20 grand, acre, whatever. But the reality is there is a lot of high-priced land sale uh, activity still going on and land. A little lower on interest rates for that than you would be for operating money or something like that. But you're still talking about obligating 7 to 8% probably uh, interest rates. And it hasn't seemed to have slowed down. There has been a push, and this is, again, I like to look at non-ag media. And when you see there is still some investor group uh, money and some outside capital buying farm ground. Uh, It seems very ill-timed, but that's what's generally always happened. You know, when the doctor's when the doctors and the uh, business people uh, that live out here in my Phoenix, Arizona neighborhood, at a Christmas party, say, "Boy, I heard that farm ground's really uh worth a lot of money. I think I should buy some." I'm like time for us to sell. When 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 the, <laughs> when the non-ag when the non-ag cocktail sipping doctor thinks it's time to buy farm ground, it's probably a really good time to sell. Anyway. Um, <laughs> what what is what we are talking about though is the equipment stuff my understanding is from my buddies in the equipment business that things were just charging right along and then somebody like threw cold water like a bucket of cold water got tossed on the equipment market at the toward the end of 2023 that's counter to what has usually happened right Farm belt looks like they're going to make money. Let's go out and spend some of it, so we can avoid some ta- do some tax, uh, some tax based spending, if you will. My understanding is combines and large machinery slowing down a little bit, and that is an in- there's absolutely two things. Looking ahead to commodity prices and what projected revenue is going to look like, projected net revenue, which might be not much net revenue, meaning that income next year, and then also these interest rates. So, are the farm people making the decision to hold off till we get cheaper interest rates, I'd say that it's more likely that they're holding back, realizing that they're going to be maybe in a little bit of, it might put them a little bit over a barrel
2: right now. Yeah. 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 They're looking down that. they're looking down that land payment, right? Or a large, large piece of equipment payment. And they're just like, man, I think I'm going to, I think we'll ma- maintain what we got. So. Yeah.
0: And I don't like to be like the old, you know, the old guy at the general store uh, talking about hey, the old days. Historically, Production agriculture is a break-even endeavor. I mean, it, it cost the, the commodity price ends up coming back to the cost of production. I mean, it's just it's the way it is. It's commodity production, and I can't speak for all the specialty crops, but I do know folks that work in that space. And I know your your people are in Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, and I'm covering a pretty big geography here. From I was in the prairie, I was in the Prairie provinces talking to the oat people, and then uh, you know I've got the people in California. Some of the specialty crop stuff has been struggling for a while. Like we think soybeans and corn and maybe wheat, possibly cattle, dairy, and pigs when we talk about the listeners to the series Field Points episode here. But what we're going to bear in mind is that some of the people, the almond people have been taking it in the shorts for the last three years. You know, they 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 got they couldn't get containers. They couldn't get water in California, you know, 100% of the almonds and United States are born or raised in California you can't get water there's a disastrous uh, you can you know uh, regulatory policies out there so they're just they're just over the barrel all the time couldn't get containers to ship their stuff uh and then they're idling land so for us talk about we might be heading into a little bit of a downturn uh it's the old thing kind of like we just got through Christmas remember that those that are they're less uh shall we say well off than you corn and soybean wheat pork dairy beef crowd so we end up plodding along here at maybe a challenging 2024. There's been specialty crop stuff. If you were in the produce business, you know, the whole pandemic thing of shutting down restaurants, people don't go and put salad bars in their houses. you know. So all the specialty vegetable crop got killed. Almonds got killed. There's a whole bunch of benefit that the average commodity Midwest type producer benefited over the last several years and a lot of other pockets of agriculture struggled. Sure. No, that's good
2: perspective. Thanks,
0: Damian. Appreciate that.
1: Are there any future consumer trends that you're looking at for this year and the impact they might have on ag?
0: Yeah. Morgan, for one, I've been saying to my ag crowd for a long time that we have a customer base that is moving away from commodity mindset while we still are entrenched in commodity mindset. We still, as people that grew up in ag and work in ag, we think cheap, cheap, cheap. How cheap? And we, God knows, go to any Farm Bureau meeting, they'll still tell you how cheap your food is. And the reality is, I always point out, when you've got a country that spends literally tens of billions of dollars per year on bottled water, that tells me that, it can, remember, water's still free. <laughs> it's, it's available in every tap. We have the safest, we, outside of Flint, Michigan, we have the safest tap water in the world. it's water's free, and yet you've got a consumer base that's spending billions and billions of, you know, de- tens of billions of dollars on water. That we have a customer that doesn't mind spending more on buying up on food, hence Whole Foods with their four thousand and some odd stores, and you know whatever that number should be. Here's the thing: one thing that I've been saying that for a long time that the consumer can upsell, and we need to get out of our commodity mindset. I think that the last two and a half years of inflationary pressure at the grocery store might actually have changed some of that. So. It's apparent if you read on where household savings numbers look like they are. It's apparent if you look at where spending is happening at the grocery level. So one trend that I'm going to talk about then would be that this inflationary things finally put the consumer back where ag already was. We always thought that all they cared about was price. But that's not true. If every consumer only cared about price, why would it be $6.99 a dozen cage free, organic, um, (laughs) blessed by a rabbi? All the hens were red eggs, you know? And there are such, I'm being a little facetious, but not by much. So every consumer isn't geared to price. Some are, many are not. And so I think that more, what happened in 08 to 014, Morgan, and I talked about it in my book back here, we saw a meat a meat trade down, then become a meat decline. Generally, the more money you make, the more meat you eat and all that. The last time we saw a decline in meat consumption was between 09 and 014. The consumer started to get you know, really pinched, Uh, 08, 09, 10. We went down about 10%. I think if we think... I think if we see food inflation, stay where it is. Because the, you know, the media will like to tell you, or the, certainly the White House will like to tell you that they've got inflation almost under control. Uh, you know, I'm I'm better off than many people, and I'm not being arrogant, but I am. And I go to the grocery store and I get a little wincy. So what is that mother whose husband works construction and she stays at home with two or three kids? They're a, little, they're a little more squeezed, right? What are they thinking when they go in and see where these food prices are? So I could see a return to a, a, a continual trade down. And that's happening. I, I haven't seen the numbers yet to see if meat consumption is going down, but these beef numbers are pretty high. Chicken's still pretty high. Pork's staying about flat. I wonder if that's one trend we're going to see is by the third year of food inflation starting to take a toll. We haven't quite gotten to the 80s. Some of us are old enough to remember generics. Where instead of getting Hershey syrup, you got Kroger brand chocolate syrup, you know, and, and it was just sometimes just said syrup, you know, whatever. We haven't quite gotten there, but there is definitely uh, evidence that that's gonna happen. Does that matter to ag? It matters to beef. It matters if you're upselling stuff. It matters if you're trying to sell a quart of cashew milk when all of a sudden uh, regular milk looks pretty darn appetizing because you can get a whole gallon for what a quart of cashew milk costs. So these things look like they're gonna maybe actually have some, some uh, traction because, still a lot of pressure on pricing.
2: Good. Hey, this is, Dana, this is a bit of a more of a longer-term question or longer-term outlook as it relates to just the the way that consumers will purchase food. But I read an article about a month ago that was predicting that most of the consumers will buy a lot of their fresh produce, fresh meat uh, locally at the grocery store, but most of the stuff that they would buy today in the center of the store is actually come online. Like it'll be just transacted, it'll be sent to your home. Have you heard anything like the, that being a trend for you know this is probably 10 years out or 15 years out
0: kind of it's a trend already and the thing is the grocery stores used to historically they made a lot more margin on what they call the perimeter where the produce is always on the perimeter meat and deli is always on a perimeter that's where the stuff is refrigerated and it's it's got a definitely a a shelf life uh, time frame right you, you know sure. the pound of bologna is only good for so long so yeah, are the consumers going to continue to buy the not the less perishable, the cans and the boxes, if you will, the more processed stuff they buy and have it shipped to them? Maybe does that because then the person in ag is going to say, well, why does that matter to me? Let's go full circle and take it back to the person that's listening to this. Why do you care? It means that there's still there still is a I want to touch it, feel it, see it, and and pick it up if it's more gear if it's more viewed to be fresh. Then you say, okay, consumer what about the consumer that not only they want to also have the story? What do we talk about where there's opportunities for ag to get more upsell? Cheerios already is a branded product, right? General Mills invented Cheerios. They take oats, they puff them, turn them into little circles. They're Cheerios. You can get the generic Cheerios. Walmart has a version of generic Cheerios. I don't know what it's called and I don't buy cereal hardly anymore because I'm you know not a child. <laughs> but the point is where's the upsell opportunity for AG it's that stuff that we're talking about it already has been out here for a while organic or regenerative or all natural in in the produce col in the produce category in the meat category artisan cheeses that's again stuff that is in that that perimeter of store area versus the center of store where the dog food and the cans of uh you know Campbell soup bar so is the opportunity there that um we will see more of a, we will see as ag producers more bonus on that. I don't know. Traceability is another one to Morgan's point where we're going to see a trend line move. We've been hearing this thing about, I want to know where my food comes from. I want to know where food comes from. Is this getting to where, when we have on our phone right now, honestly, so much technology, are these phones then going to be that we can truly, truly see where uh, the traceability is? And will there be a premium on that? I just sat in on a session last uh, winter for uh, the beef trade, and they talked at great length about continually getting the where the beef can be uh, verified, source verified, handling how it's handled, etc. So is this an opportunity? Maybe, unfortunately, more for the processors and the retailers than for the producers. But generally, when you add more value at the consumer end, some of that trickles back to the producer. Sure, no, that makes that makes that makes sense.
1: Yeah. How much of that do you think has to continue to happen before we see our producers start transitioning how they're doing their business? I feel like if we're talking about pinched margins and things like that, the first thing is like, well, maybe we diversify, maybe we change up our operation, but long-term, is that really viable? Do you think we'll see much of that or do you think it's right out the next year or two and then just keep doing what we're doing?
0: It's a very difficult thing because, and I, I certainly understand all sides of it, Remember, I live half the years in the sub half the year in the suburbs of Phoenix out here, and I go to a Fries, which is part of Kroger, and it's got sushi and a wine bar, and you know it's it's very fancy. And I live the other half of the year at my farm in rural Indiana, so I see both sides of it. And certainly, I know the farm folks. <clears throat> you go and tell a farm person, "Hey, the consumer wants this." And then there's resistance, and and there's resistance because, first off, far, farm people don't want to necessarily always you know change what they do. They're, they're, they're a little dug in about that. There's also evidence that says maybe I shouldn't. Kroger announced six or eight years ago that all of their eggs were going to be cage-free, and McDonald said all the eggs are going to be cage-free by the year 2025. So a bunch of large producers, and it's easier in poultry because it tends to be very vertically integrated and controlled by a smaller number of producers versus, say, corn producers, right? There's There's a much more a much more controlling and controllable amount of egg producers than there are, say, corn producers, because there's like uh, 60 egg producers probably produce 90% of all the eggs in the country. So they said, all right, we're all going to go cage-free. <laughs> and there was a premium attached to it initially. And then we got so many cage-free eggs because they went ahead and converted their operations, built new barns, converted their barns. We got more cage-free eggs than we have cage-free demand. So what that essentially did was eroded the premium. I was like, wait a minute, cage-free just became the new commodity. That's where I can understand the farmer saying, Damien, you talk about doing this new thing. After I do it, I get paid for it for about a year and a half. And then all of a sudden, I said, yeah, that becomes the new commodity. But when you think about it, and this is where I always challenge my ag people, it's not that I'm yeah. critical. I'm just telling you that's where the marketplace goes just think about this. Maybe Drew's old enough. He doesn't have any hair, so I'm presuming he's older than you. (laughs) There was a time when you went to look at a car. Let's just say it was 40 years ago, which sounds like a long time to somebody your age, Morgan, but it's not really long ago. And it might say on the listing about what the car's features were, it might say things like power windows, power brakes, power locks. Go and find a car that's been sold in the last 20 years that doesn't have power windows power door locks power door locks power brakes all these things the point is it became commodity for them also what was a feature what was non what was cage free eggs in the car business is now by god i wouldn't even consider buying a car that doesn't have air conditioning and power windows that's where we got to realize that we're a producer just like the car companies are cage free eggs are the new power windows and air conditioning I, I mean, that's kind of the tough part of it, and that's where the more the consumer has these opportunities, the more we're going to have to realize, and this is something that I think is important in, in production agriculture, we don't have a starving customer base anymore. They're, they're not like, scarcity doesn't rule, the, rule, abundance is the rule. We have surpluses. We didn't have surpluses 60, 70, 90 years ago. We have surpluses now, so it's a little bit more of a discerning customer base
2: well I think that's where the role of innovation can play for the for the producer they can capture the opportunity in a market like you just described for a short period of time but they've got to be looking out for the what, what that next opportunity and trend is so that's why experts like yourself and others it's important for farmers to take time to be students of the game but and I you know I find that they get very operationally focused on things that are happening and making sure that you know they're getting that done but take some you know my encouragement is take take some time to get yourself out of that mode and actually think and think through this thing at the bigger picture and strategically and think about how they can maybe apply some apply some of that innovation to
0: the to the farm gate and it's not like nobody's being critical here i mean we we produce the, the you know the safest most abundant most affordable food in the in the planet that we're amazing at it sure. but if we're talking about the listeners that are your customers that are series customers and they, and they want to build margins. If we get tightened, which we will, and, and there's gonna be changes. It's always been this way. There's gonna be commodity pressure going to come down. The, you know, the word used to be diversification. Take take uh, your personal finance classes and they talk about diversification. Don't have all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. But that runs counter to what really agriculture, modern agriculture has done in the last 40 years, 50 years. In the 1950s, 60s, even 70s, there was a farming operation that milked cows. On their rough ground, they had, uh, you know, forty beef cow calf pears. They had a hog facility. They had a chicken facility, and they grew corn, soybeans, and probably also even a small grain, call it wheat or something like this. And then through specialization, we've gotten to where we generally, I mean, it's you're far you're far pushed to find somebody that's a farming operation that varies by more than a couple of things produced, right? Milk, meat. Or whatever that thing should be. So through diversification, through I'm sorry, specialization, we've gotten amazingly good. Our maximization of the resources, our optimization of the of the feed conversion ratio. Uh, you know, you're talking about putting a pound of growth on a broiler uh, with a pound and six tenths of grain. My God, what, I mean, what what more could <laughs> you ever really hope efficient. for? We're, we're remarkably good at it. I mean, right there, you're in Wabash County. You think the people up there at Midwest Poultry are bad at producing eggs? They're amazing at producing eggs. That's all they produce. So with specialization, we've gotten amazing at the utilization of resources and for the output. What we've done though also is we've made it so <laughs> your eggs are in one basket. And where I think things go, I think the operator of the future, the successful farm operator of the future, when we talk about diversification, it, it could be specialty crop. And yeah, I know we've seen this before—you know, white food grade corn for tortilla chips or whatever that thing should be. But what if it's diversification and it's a methane digester? What if it's diversification and it's truly a, an off? An off-farm investment. I mean, trucking uh, companies, you know, all-natural fertilizer. My friend Kelly Garrett has a trucking business. He has a plant food business, and he also has a farming business. And that's where I think the operator of the future is going to have to look because specialization has been really good for that one thing, but you definitely are all in on one thing. And so if we're going to have – now, granted – Government programs that a lot of times come along. We saw it. It was what the year 2020 that uh, about one fourth of farm income was from the government. But if you don't want to have that <laughs> as as your oh gosh, I sure hope that I'm going to get uh, made whole on this. I think the the diversification back out of some specialization and it could look a little different. Oh, you know, you can talk about agritourism or those kinds of things. Could be small scale meat processing. Could be branded products. The good news is when you talk about uh, uh, Drew going online, consumers are completely past the fear of buying food online. They, it was already trending that way. The internet uh, was already t- trending that way. And then that whole pandemic thing, I don't think there's anything you can't, that, that the consumer wouldn't buy online right now. So that could end up being good for the direct to market. But That's still small-scale stuff. I think that the the specialization, getting back to some diversification, is going to be a trend that we see among business-minded, forward-thinking farm operators.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's not much different than the, the trends that we're seeing with our. I'm going to call it young, innovative producers that are going to continue to grow in size and scale. They do see that maybe with automation and technology and innovation helping solve for some of that labor gap, that they're able to actually bring some diversification back to the farm because of because of solving for some of those labor challenges. So you're uh, you're right over the target, in my opinion, from the things that we're hearing from a lot of the um, series customers.
0: So thanks for that. Of those younger people they are looking at the future you know let's say they are in a they're, they're fortunate in that they have some generational farming capital they're coming into right good for them and then in the challenge is to take it to the next level what if it's yeah we also own uh storage units we also own uh we also my wife and i i do more on the farming she you know what she she owns a subway i I don't know what that thing should be but i'm just i'm i'm seeing this happen and i see some of the 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 folks that you're talking about and it's actually it's just very it's just like if you said you know what i did i took a hundred percent of my 401k and i put it all into bluesky.com because this whole dot com thing's never going to end People say, are you an idiot? <laughs> <You're> an idiot. <laughs> right. What you You what? Why don't you have some level of uh, breadth here with your uh, portfolio? Well, I think that you could also maybe look at that and say, hey, it's good that you specialize in corn and soybean production, and you're amazing at it. Why don't you take 10% every year uh, out of that and roll it into something that's over here? And I think that that's where uh, the, the the successful producer of tomorrow is going to start looking. Good, good coaching.
1: Yeah, everyone's Googling bluesky.com right now to see if it's available. (laughs) Okay. So we talked about inflation a little bit at the start. And on your podcast, I believe I heard that you usually don't have a recession during an election year. So what else do you think we can expect to see this year with it being an election year?
0: Yeah. Well, the reason that you don't see a recession during election year is because the (laughs) entrenched people in charge will do will pull every lever possible to them. And current person that's in our White House, I don't know that if he knows what lever he would pull. I don't know if he knows what a lever is. I don't know (laughs) if he knows how to pull a lever. But there are people behind him that are pulling levers on his behalf to protect their own situation. The sad part is, if that means, hey, things are looking really bad by spring-summer, we're going to just throw out another couple of trillion dollars of government spending I and mean, then everybody gets this windfall you know if you woke up today you get a payment inflation adjustment payments if that happens we're already on the precipice of we've never seen this level of debt the last time we saw this level of federal debt on a comparative basis to our gross domestic product meaning the amount of debt compared to what we actually produce is as bad as it's been since World War II. It was that way during World War II because we had a world war going on that we were attempting to finance to prevent from having to goose step down Main Street in the United States of America, like the Nazis. And we had just gotten Pearl Harbor blown up. We can understand going a little bit over on spending to prevent <laughs> to prevent from being overtaken by those uh, Axis forces in World War II. Why do we hit this level of spending now? because we wanted to invent a thing called the Inflation Reduction Act to incentivize somebody to put uh, solar panels over farm ground. It is ridiculous. It is unsustainable. And it is actually, shall I say, it puts us in a very vulnerable situation to our adversaries. It is irresponsible and reckless to have this level of debt. So if the administration or the people in Congress decide that man you know what nobody ever gets reelected during the during bad recession times everybody goes to the ballot box mad and then throws us out so let's go ahead and authorize a trillion here and a trillion there it's going to be it's all it will do is take the inflation thing that was already bad and uh, maybe subsiding a bit and it'll give it a shot in the arm it'll give it a shot at, it's not even a shot in the arm it's going to give it a snort of coke that's what it's going to do if we if we see that happen and it's not good It'll be short-term good for agriculture because all of a sudden those people that were cutting back a little bit go crazy again. But it's bad long-term for the security of our nation. It's challenging
2: time, and in twenty twenty four will be uh, will be uh, interesting to say the least in in an election in an election year.
0: More federal money just for the fun of it because you already liked the coke reference. I saw you laugh. If you if more federal money being tossed around recklessly in twenty twenty four just because the politicians want to have a chance at reelection is like giving uh, honestly it's like giving drugs to a to a, an addict. It's it's yeah. not what we need yeah. at all, and I'm afraid that that's what's possibly going to happen. They're going to start pulling some levers that uh, we don't want pulled. All right, Damien, I can tell that you like the hot
2: seat. So I'm going to give you um, a th- three or four topics here. You get to pick one of them and give us your opinion of one of these topics. One, tell us about solar panels on Indiana farm ground, take renewable fuels, what th- its impact could be into the industry. Talk about China, its import export and, and its impact in agriculture, both positive and
0: negative, or the future of water policy. Pick your favorite and give us your opinion. I like all of them, Drew. You should, uh, Morgan, I'll have to come back in another few months and give you uh, my take <laughs> on all of them. I'm going to go with one that I've been talking about for a while, China. And this morning's Wall Street Journal has an article right here. China's campaign for more babies meets resistance. Women reject Beijing's efforts to boost rapidly falling population beginning about eight years ago, I started telling my agricultural audiences that there's a few things that you've been lied to. If you're in the business of agriculture, you've been lied to and told there's an imminent chance of starvation. We're all going to starve. There's an absolute, no questions about it prediction that we're all going to overpopulate. I said, neither of those things are going to happen. And I'm going to tell you why. And I started going through this all eight years ago. I said, You've been told we're going to starve because we won't produce enough. The reality is we waste a third of what we produce globally in food production. Agriculture always catches up. The good people that are listening to this thing right now, the series cooperative employees and the customers and the uh, farmer producers, we have risen to the occasion and our productive capacity has outmatched our ability to eat more we're not going to starve. We waste a third of what we produce globally. In third world countries, it gets wasted because there's no infrastructure, no highways, no railroads, uh, no refrigeration, no reliable electric grid, whatever that should be. In countries like ours, we waste it because we're pretty well off. Even after two years of uh, inflationary pressures, we still are wasteful about our food. Less now because it's more expensive, but still we waste a lot of food. I said also about the population thing. Every ag meeting you've gone to, In the last 15, maybe 20 years, we've talked about China, 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 China. You couldn't go to an ag meeting since the year 2010, let's say, and not hear about China. And every hack ag economist would get up there, Drew and Morgan, and say, here's the thing. China got 1.4 billion people. If each person in China eats one more cheeseburger a week, that's the entire capacity of the two big meat processing facilities in Dodge City, Kansas. Whatever. is it? basically a hack ag economist thing. Take any... Thing, a chicken breast times 1.4 billion and then tell everybody how amazing and well I started calling BS on this a long time ago and I said all you people are enamored with China first off China is a communist country ruled by a dictator dictatorial communist regime and things are not going to be rosy with China forever I said also the population thing we're not going to have this population in fact China's leading the story on this today I was eight years ahead of this by the way China has a fertility rate of 1.09. It takes 2.1 babies per female for your population to remain at break-even, replacement rate. They are about half that. They're at 1.09, okay? China is up against the ropes in a bad way. China's population has been... the Key to their growth was move, moving poor rural people into cities, giving them jobs, manufacturing stuff inexpensively. They were working for four bucks an hour when the persons in the United States are working for 12, whatever that number should be, the conversion. It worked out magically when it worked. It's not working anymore. So the population thing, we're not going to overpopulate. Every country is slowing down except for about six or 12 countries on their fertility rate drastically. China is probably going to actually institute policies where they forcibly impregnate poor women is my prediction. Oh, you sound harsh. They forcibly sterilized and forcibly aborted women's babies just 20 years ago because they thought they were going to have too many people. Why is it so far-fetched then to think they would forcibly impregnate those that are not the ruling class? That's probably what's going to happen. Where do I see China then going and why am I telling you all this? They led the whole charge that we couldn't live without them. We thought we couldn't live without them agriculturally in the United States of America. They are about 18% of our exports last year, about 18% of our, I said, 2022 exports. I haven't seen the 2023 numbers yet. About 18% of our exports, agriculturally. Is that big? Yes. Can we live without them? Yes. Now, here's why. China, 18% of our exports. You know what? Mexico, one-tenth the population of China, not our enemy. Mexico's ascending economy. And we got a problem at the border right now. It's really not Mexicans that are coming across the border. It's from every other poor part of the world that's coming across the border. Mexico is a number two agricultural customer, tied with Canada. They are 77% as big of customers as China. The point is, we have other countries that are smaller than China that are buying a way bigger percentage of their food from us. We're going to have to live without China. I believe that China is absolutely uh, in a war with us. We don't know it yet. I think that some of the things that we see when we talk about cyber attacks, think that some of this information or misinformation campaigns, I would look at who's behind this. I would say that China is in a situation where they're getting more desperate. Again, when you're talking about the population, they realize their the strength has been their numbers. Numbers have been their strength. They're losing numbers. Prediction is they're going to go from 1.4 billion to about half that by the end of this decade. Think about that. If your population fertility rate is down there under one, meaning instead of 2.1 babies, it's like under one, you lose a third of your population every generation. Just think about that. So China is now getting desperate. China is starting to have economic problems. So China's got population issues, some economic problems, and we're not buying as much of our stuff from them, and they're not buying as much of their own stuff from them. China's going to get more desperate. So China's not only not going to be a customer of the United States of America, China's already trying to set things up with Brazil. China's already gone to other countries to create economic diplomacy if you will, but it's really it's really economic colonialism. They go to other countries, invest money and then extract resources. It's 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 imperialism like we you know like the the European countries had in the 1800s. So where I think that we must keep our guard up, we still tune into the AM news and they say, oh, good thing is China bought a bunch of soybeans. China's not going to be there forever. And China is absolutely in in an adversarial position with the United States of America right now. We seem to not understand it. And we in agriculture are probably due to be hurt as much as anybody because we are the biggest single category of exports to China.
2: Yeah. Good. I'm glad you picked that one because I was really hoping that that you would uh, give us your opinion on well, that. Well, think so. about
0: Drew and Morgan. I know I talked a lot, but I think it's really important for the person listening to this because the person that's driving around right now listening to this in, in Indiana or Ohio says, wait a minute, I just went to an AgMe and they talked about China buying our stuff. China does buy our stuff. China also manipulates markets, and China is trying to supplant and replace us as rapidly as possible. They will not be our customer. I, I'm absolutely convinced of it that five years from now they will be – a small customer compared to our largest customer because of the way things, the tensions that are heating up and their aggressive, aggressive approach to how they handle the United States of America. And like I said, the one thing that's worse than a thriving China might be a floundering China, when all of a sudden they've got the population decline, they've got a manufacturing decline, they've got pressure on companies like Apple that are moving away from China, and now all of a sudden... They have to buddy up more with North Korea, you know, on nuclear arms. I mean, what what's their recourse? A desperate China yes. is more of a threat to the United States than a thriving China in that regard.
2: Yeah, don't take your eye off the ball on this one. That's the that's the lesson. <laughs> be
0: be informed. I. Uh... And by the way, that ties into the renewable fuel. It looks like, and this is, I don't think, in any way, the the U.S. government being smart or planning this, the renewable diesel push. could then replace the China demand for soybeans. And so we might end up having a nice handoff. Like Mac Marshall, the guy with the U.S. soybean group, was on, we're going to need 18 million more acres of soybeans to satisfy this renewable diesel thing. Probably what happens is soybeans that were destined for China might be destined for renewable diesel one and two and three years from now. So it could just be a handoff, which is still means soft landing for the soybean markets, right? But it means that China, I believe China ultimately continues to decline as a customer. And I think decline, I think the decline is going to start happening pretty precipitously. Interesting.
1: So as we were sitting here first week in January, is there anything else that you think growers should be thinking about as we head into this new year?
0: Yeah, everybody talks about and we talked about money, we talked about inflation, we talked about interest rates, talked about China and I' I'm, I'm not a naysayer. I know that I probably threw a lot of stuff out there. I think that we're still in a really good position. Uh, those of us that talk about historically, this is nowhere close to the 80s. Um, I would be very cautious about uh, about being sloppy. Generationally, uh, there was not like that thing for me. I couldn't come back into some well-held operation and and move into this thing because we were, we were um, not in that position on the farm that I was raised on. If you're going to bring the next generation in, I think that there's optimism, but things are going to tighten a little bit. I would encourage you to make sure that the next generation gets away for a while and sees uh, some other things and comes back into it. And I would say that uh, make sure the next generation is – realize that they are business people that happen to endeavor in agriculture, that, uh, they taught me a a thing when I started out and you may have known this 30 years ago, I quit my job to become a comedian. And, uh, six months in, I was really working hard a year. I was really working hard. I was concentrated on the business side of it. And then, uh, one thing that I've always told people is there's four words, there's four letters in the word show. There's double that many in the word business. And people say, what does, what does that mean? I say, put twice as much effort into the business as the show. It's a given that you should be a showman. It's a given that you better be good if you're going to try and be in show business. That part's the ticket to admission. Concentrate on the business part of it. Well, let's go farm business. There's four letters in the word farm. Yes, there's the agronomics. Yes, it's sexy to go and ride in that combine and see 260 bushel corn coming in on the yield monitor. But remember there's twice as many letters in the word business. It is a business. And I think that uh, when things look like we're heading into a little bit of uh, choppier waters, uh, I would make sure that I was encouraging myself as well as the next generation to focus on the business side of the farm as much or twice as much as just the agronomic side of the farm. That's great.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking time with us today. If someone's listening and wants to follow along with your work, where would you suggest they go?
0: Go to DamianMason.com, D-A-M-I-A-N, DamianMason.com. D-A-M-I-A-N, Damian I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. And um, I uh, have the Business of Agriculture podcast releases every Monday. Got some really good guests and good topics that we cover there. We cover a lot of ground. And then, uh, and then obviously I'm uh, on stages all over North America at different agricultural functions. So uh, thanks for letting me come on here. I know I talk too much, but I got plenty to say.
1: I <laughs> no, appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Damian. Appreciate it. Bye, Drew. Thanks, Morgan.
1: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Field Points. And thank you so much to Damian for taking the time to walk us through his thoughts on what's to come this year. I encourage you to follow along with his content at the Business of Agriculture podcast and see the other things he's working on at DamianMason.com. In our next episode, we're going to pivot and talk about energy. We have Matt Makinson from Countrymark to talk through policy impacting renewable fuels. You won't want to miss it. The show notes for this episode will be available Available at series.coop. That's cere dot C-O-O-P. If you enjoyed this deeper dive, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Your review and feedback will help other listeners like you find our podcast, and we are so thankful for that.